In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you. You may be seated. And let's pray. Father, we have no hope of apprehending what's going on here in your word. Unless your Holy Spirit speaks, helps, teaches, convicts, builds up, encourages. And we know that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So we trust you to do what only you can do in and through us this morning. For your people, God, teach and instruct. For those who do not know you, Holy Spirit, breathe life and bring repentance about and give faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Okay, so two weeks ago, we started talking about the end of all things. Last week, Andrew's filling in a lot of details about different thought patterns of what the end of all things might look like. So this morning, I'm going to answer the burning question. And I'm going to do it right up front. I'm going to do it first. Yes, I do have new glasses on. <laughs> You're welcome. Back to the Yeah, yeah. Me and John have new glasses. And y'all were wondering, are those new glasses? Yes, they are. Let me tell you why I'm wearing new glasses. Because my eyes have decided to freak out. And like my prescription didn't work, so I bought these at O'Reilly Auto Parts. (laughs) These are two and a half time magnifiers and they're perfect. I don't know why. A week ago they wouldn't have been perfect. I don't know. Maybe I had a stroke in my sleep and my eyes. I don't know. And so yes, these are new glasses. Because I know you were wondering. And I know that was the burning question on your mind this morning as we start talking about the end of all things. Right? I mean, that's the only thing that matters is that there are new glasses. Yeah. Very, and this is not meant to be a pun, but it's awfully funny, it's very easy to lose focus, isn't it? It's very easy to miss what really matters, especially when something grabs our attention. Like, Reading glasses from O'Reilly Auto Parts. So, 
This morning as we approach what is actually the last doctrinal part of Peter's second letter, next, the next passage is just the ending, basically the post-law, the PS kind of thing. And we'll finish, Lord willing, Second Peter next week. But this week, we answer a really big question. And it's not, when's all this going to happen? And I'm not saying that's not important, and we'll talk about that some, but it's not the main thing. When all this happens, how all it happens is not the main thing. We'll talk about what is when we get there. So, we'll start in verse 8, if I can see my notes. There they are. Okay. But... Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You know, it's so funny because there are so many opportunities in this passage to lose our focus. There are so many things that can distract us and we go, whoa, what about this? This is one of those things, right? And we'll talk about that in a second too. But we left off at the end of the last passage a couple weeks ago with Peter reassuring his readers that all those scoffers are going to scoff, haters are going to hate, right? And say that it's silly to believe in Jesus or in Jesus coming back since nothing, they say, has been different since the beginning of time, since creation. That's what the scoffers say. Peter reassures his readers that not only is Jesus going to come back, but also that the same world that was destroyed at the time of Noah's flood which is something that those scoffers choose to overlook, the same word that destroyed the world in the time of Noah's flood, sometime in the future, that same world, by that same word, is going to be destroyed by fire. And Peter's point in saying that is that the ungodly, the scoffers, the false teachers, all of them are going to face judgment at God's hands. The scoffers are shown to be wrong in their scoffing ultimately. And so Peter is reminding his readers of this because they need to be able to hear what these scoffers say and not lose heart. Not start to doubt when it just begins to become pervasive. And then that little thought pops into their minds. Pop, maybe, you know what, it's not any different. Maybe, maybe I'm believing old wives' tales, even though Peter said we didn't give you cleverly devised myths. Maybe, I don't know, maybe my senses are telling me that this doesn't make sense anymore. They need to be able to hear the pervasive tide of the culture, the scoffers, the false teachers, the sinners, the unrighteous, who are saying, eat, drink, today, be merry, because nothing matters. All that matters is what you want. All that matters is you should be happy. All that matters is, all that matters is, not what really matters. So Peter's readers, which I'll I'll never get tired of saying that, Peter's readers, um, need to be reassured so that they don't start to doubt as the scoffers scoff, as the haters hate. So as has been his pattern, Peter continues to remind them, like Will was saying this morning, of what has always been true and always will be true. And so today he starts our passage with our favorite contrastive conjunction. But... So verse 7 was, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's some butting going on in both of these verses, and then we'll see another but in verse 10. 
Peter is stringing together a list of statements and reasons to explain the things that the scoffers are not taking into consideration. They say this, but, but, but. And here in verse 8, after pointing out in verse 7 that judgment by fire is coming, Peter addresses the time issue. The scoffers are saying nothing has been different, nothing is different since creation. It's been so long and nothing has changed, they say. But, Peter says, do not overlook this one fact. The scoffers point to 4,000 years of history and say, just look, 4,000 years, all this time, and God hasn't intervened in anything yet. And remember, they have chosen to overlook God's actions in things like the flood. And then Peter then says to his beloved, his beloved brothers, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now that's a quote from Psalm 90, verse 4. And i got no control up here, Andrew, if you can click my stuff. I probably should, if you can change the slides, let's say it that way. So Peter is quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, which reads, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Now I just love that. Peter does what to answer the scoffers and strengthen his readers? He quotes the Bible. (laughs) Again, not new information. Not just reason and logic, even though there's some in there, but the sword of the Spirit. If you are going to know who God is, if you are going to know what God is going to do, we look at His Word. And so Peter goes there to answer the scoffers here. Oh, it's been forever! Well, Peter says, not really. While 4,000 years is a long time, it's a long time to us created beings. For those who exist in time, and for those created beings who exist in time, yeah, four millennia is quite the stretch, right? But here's the thing. God is not a created being. And God does not exist in time. And so that makes things tricky in how we see things. Warren Wiersbe puts it well in saying, quote, Once again, Peter exposed the ignorance of the scoffers. Not only were they ignorant of what God had done in the past, which he mentioned in 2 Peter 3.5, but they were also ignorant of what God is like. They were making God in their own image and ignoring the fact that God is eternal. This means that he has neither beginning nor ending. Now I love this. He says this. This is great. Man, we, man is immortal. He has a beginning, but will not have an ending. Man will live forever, either in heaven or hell, but God is eternal without beginning or ending. And he dwells in eternity. Eternity is not just extended time. Rather, it is existence above and apart from time. End of quote. Let me, let me boil all that down to this. God's bigger than us. Amen. He's different than we are. We are created in His image, but we are created. And He's not. And Peter reminds these folks and us that we should not overlook this one fact. The scoffers had purposefully chosen to overlook the historical fact of the flood, Peter says, but Peter wants to make sure that God's people don't overlook this timely fact. 
God is not wringing His hands and trying to make it to the church on time. He's not trying to work around traffic. He's not recomputing. We've said this time and time and time again on Wednesday nights in our Ephesians study, and Piper said it, and we've said it, and everybody said it many times. But again, listen, the plan of God is an eternal plan. From eternity past and all the way into eternity future. And right now we do not dwell in that eternity, but God does. And God's plan, which is an eternal plan from eternity past into eternity future, has never and will never change. And so when we look at 6,000 years of history now, if we lose our urgency and forget the imminency of Jesus' return, we think God's forgotten. Or maybe He's changed His mind. Or maybe we've misread something. Because there's no way, right? There's no way it would take Him this long to do what He has said He would do. No way. And while I don't think Peter or the psalmist was being literal, giving a time map for God's plan, maybe they were. I don't think they were. But again, here, time out. Again, we can get so misdirected and we start to get into the debate about whether this was literal or not. And that's not the point of the passage. But man, we'll get lost in it. We'll go down the whirlpool of it and say, okay, let's map this out. Let's go into Daniel. Let's go into Ezekiel and figure out how this 6,000 years, so we're, we're six days into God's plan. and It's not the point. We get our focus away from the main thing and start focusing on trees instead of the forest. And there's a time to observe the trees, but we need to see the big picture before we do that. So while I don't think Peter or the psalmist were being literal, one year equals, one day equals 1,000 years, giving us like a strict time map for God's plan. Well, I don't think that's what's going on. I do think he's pointing us away from our view of time and calling us to focus on eternity and trying to decipher God's plan. Get out of your tiny little mind Get out of your watch. Get out of the clock on the wall. Get out of your calendar. And get in God's eternal purposes. That's the purpose here. And he reiterates that with grace and hope in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Boy, we could fall into a hole here too, couldn't we? Because there's some stuff going on here, right? So since God exists outside of time and His plan is an eternal plan and a day to Him is like a thousand years to us, vice versa, what can we draw from that? Well, Peter says that it's safe to say that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. I mean, if Peter's dealing with 4,000 years of history at the time of his writing, and we're dealing with 6,000 now, well, that's only been like a half week or so. If you put that 1,000 years one day type thing in. So it's not like God is just mindlessly forgetting His promises, fell asleep up there somewhere, and then realized, oh no, 6,000 years, I've really taken a long nap. And that sounds silly, but we start to think this way. Surely God couldn't take this long to do what he said he would do. Well, Peter says it's safe to say the Lord is not slow 
to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So if it seems slow to us, we're looking from our perspective. And we need to see things from God's perspective. So it's not like God's just mindlessly forgetting his promises and then realizing that he was supposed to do something. Anybody ever woke up and realized, oh shoot, I'm supposed to be somewhere an hour ago. God doesn't do that. He's not putting things off, hoping everyone just forgets that he made that promise or these promises to judge the world and then remake it in perfection. God is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, as we count slowness. Scoffers can scoff all they want, but God is working on His timetable. God is working according to His plan. God is working to accomplish His purposes to the praise of His glory. And listen, the eternal God is not slow like we consider slowness. He is precise and He is meticulous. And He is perfect. And I think it's important to understand here that our perception of how God works is more often than not skewed and twisted by sin as well. And what happens then is our pride, our arrogance, and our own desires and plan make us exalt ourselves and believe the satanic accusation of did God really say? Did God really say He would return? Did God really say He would judge the earth? Seems kind of silly in light of it not happening for 6,000 years now. And then we find ways to reinforce our devilish thoughts as we use our senses and our senses only to inform our beliefs. And by the eye test, and I don't keep, keep talking about eyes, but it's pretty important right now. And by the eye test, God seems slow. And so we kind of live there. And throw in the tendency we have in our culture to demand everything right now. And you have a recipe for doubting God and His plan. Dismissing Him as slow and irrelevant. But... Peter says that instead of being slow, God is being what? Patient. But He is patient toward you. Ah, now there's a thought of comfort, right? It's God's love and grace that are moving Him to be patient in all of this. Not Him slacking or dragging His feet or Him falling behind in the battle or something. And why is He patient? What is He providing time and space for? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now there's quite a statement, right? It's wonderful, it's beautiful, and it can raise some really sticky theological questions at the same time, I think. Why is God taking so long, from our perspective, to come and make all things right and good? Why does He allow evil men to go from bad to worse? Peter seems to answer those and other questions with the statement that it's because God's patience is due to Him not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now if that don't make you scratch your head, you're not reading it right. So, does God not wish that any should perish? I mean, it's what it says, right? God doesn't wish that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Alright, well, okay. So then obviously, everybody will be saved due to God's great patience and loving desire, right? 
Man, that's a relief. (laughs) Well, as we've said many times before, if this verse was the entirety of Scripture, we would assume that. But we could deduce that specifically if this was the only verse that was in the Bible. But (laughs) there's a lot of verses in this letter itself, and there's 65 other books in the Bible that give a fuller picture of the will of God and His work and plan of salvation. So again, we need to see the big picture and then fit this verse into that picture to know the truth and how this verse applies to it. Now we know for sure from many clear passages of Scripture that God is sovereign over salvation. And regardless of how you apply that to your theology, it's the plain biblical truth. God is the generator, the creator, the sustainer of all things, and He decrees from His eternal will what His plan is for all of the cosmos. And as those who are in the Reformed tradition, which we are, we believe that God's sovereignty must necessarily reach into the realm of salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith and both that grace and that faith are gifts from a loving God. And He gives the gifts of our faith and of that grace to those whom He desires to give them to. And... It's clear that the plan and will of God includes people who are not saved, who get judged, and who are condemned to eternal hell. There is no universalism in the biblical teachings of salvation. No universalism in the teachings of heaven, hell, or man's responsibility in the Bible. Here's what the Bible teaches. Plainly, even though it can lead us into a lot of questions... Some people are graciously saved by God's doing. And all others are justly condemned due to their sinful nature and the resulting sinful acts that they commit. Period. Now there's a lot of wiggle room within that to figure out how that applies and what it all means, but those are the clear facts. That's the forest. So, now back in 2 Peter, Peter says that God is being patient and seeming slow to us because He doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. So then, does what the sovereign God wishes not happen? If some people do perish and don't reach repentance, is God's will foiled? Did God lose and not get what He wished? As Paul would say in Romans, may it never be. May that thought never cross your mind. May it never cross your finite human created mind that the sovereign God does not accomplish His perfect plan in all of this eternity. Including, oh I wish these other people would have been saved. But they weren't. Shoot. That's not how this works. May it never be. The whole point of this verse is to show that God's will is accomplished no matter what it may look like to us. So it's not like God wanted some saved and it didn't work out. Sovereign God does not hope things work out like He wants them to. He decrees what will be and it comes to be because He decreed it. So then what's Peter saying then? I don't really think it's that complicated, by the way. Again, I think we can lose our focus and make it harder than it's supposed to be. 
there is a strong case, and I believe a biblical case, to be made for the all here to be in the line of thought of all that God has appointed to salvation. All of the elect. And His plan to save all the elect takes what what seems to some like a long time to us and it seems like a joke of a long time to unsaved people to the point that they scoff even, right? But back to what Peter is saying, it's not God's desire that any of His elect should perish but that all of them should reach repentance. And don't miss Peter's reference to who he's speaking to in this verse. He is patient toward whom? You. Well, who's Peter writing to? The church. Saved people. He didn't say God is patient toward the world, even though He is. But in this passage, context demands that we understand this in light of the church. It's not His will that any of the elect will perish but that all of the elect will come to repentance. And let me tell you right now, that's going to happen because He has decreed it. He is patient toward whom? Toward you, His readers, the believers. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you, church, should perish, that not any of you, elect, should perish, but that all of you, church, elect, should perish reach repentance. So, God is patiently saving His people until all of them are saved. Period. It's not that hard. But we want to make it hard sometimes. But but Peter said, yeah, he did. In, In the context of all this, he said this, and it means this in the context of this. Context rules when we're interpreting Scripture. God is patiently saving His people until all of them are saved. But, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Alright, scoffers. You want to scoff? Scoff all you want. Disbelieve all you want. Look at the time all you want. But the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's used time and time again in both the Old and the New Testaments and it refers to the time when the Lord returns and judges evil and establishes a rule of righteousness that will last for all eternity. And let me tell you, most of the references, especially in the Old Testament, to the day of the Lord say the day of the Lord is darkness, suffering, gloom. Why? Because he's coming to judge unrighteousness. And that's what Peter gets back to here. Those outside of the kingdom that God is going to establish in righteousness, those outside that kingdom will not rejoice when the Lord comes like a thief. Peter shifts from the hope and the promise of the salvation of all God's elect back to what he wants to make clear to the scoffers who are dismissing God and God's people. God's people will be saved, but the day of the Lord will come. And it will come like a thief, which means it will come unexpectedly and with bad consequences for those whom the thief finds unawares. And those consequences are going to be very, very consequential. Let's just say it that way. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, in an Elizabethan sense, I'm going to use that's an awesome thought. I don't mean like awesome, woohoo! I mean like, oh my goodness. That's awesome. Awful. These consequences are awesome. They're awful consequences. We don't have a shelf to put this on. The whole cosmos will pass away. Being burned up and dissolved. Now you want to talk about power. A being who can say, burn! Or burn. And the whole stinking universe dissolves. Think about that, scoffers. Did y'all see the the animated um, Christmas Carol where Jim Carrey did Scrooge? There's one point when he gets shrunk real little, and he's mad at his housekeeper that he who can't see him because he's in a vision thing. And he's got this tiny little voice, and he says, "Mrs. Dilbo, you're fired, fired." Of course, she can't hear him. She can't see him. And I, I just imagine these scoffers going, God, you're taking a really long time. Forever. You're not coming. And God says, burn. And everything, everything is dissolved. Dissolved. It comes apart. What does? Everything with a roar, burning, dissolving. Everything passes away, burned up, dissolved. The same word that created everything, the same word that spoke everything into creation, will then break it all down to the atomic level. Pass away, burned up. Dissolved. I take that to mean that it all just passes from solid matter to smoke and to what seems like nothingness. You put a log on the fire, you put fire on it, and it becomes smoke. Well, what is smoke? It's particulate. It's that thing you're burning that's taken a different state and now it's floating in the air. Now think about that in light of everything. That's incredible. What's, what's going to become of it? We'll get to that in a minute. But Peter says the earth also and the works that are not tangible that are done on it will be exposed. And let me just say for those outside of Christ, that statement should be a terrifying thought. Everything that has been done on the earth will be exposed. That word exposed means to be discovered, to be found out. Strong's Dictionary says it implies the showing of one's character or one's state. So all that has been done, all that has been done on the earth is going to be shown, found out, exposed. Anybody think you got away with something? Mom and Dad didn't find out that I did. My mom said yesterday, she said, I know what you did when you were young. I'm like, no, you don't. No, Mama. No, no. She's like, I know a lot of them. I'm like, nope, no, you don't. You really don't. Thank God. 
But everything that has been done on the earth is going to be exposed. I just got a picture like lifting a rock and all those little bugs scurrying around. Once they've been revealed, exposed, and robbed of their covering, everything that has been done by those not in Christ will be revealed, exposed, and properly judged. And here's the most frightening part of it. By a holy God. And that is terrifying. And Peter couples that with the picture of everything in the whole universe being disintegrated by the same God who will do this exposing and judging. And the picture is one of absolute power and absolute holiness, both of which we can barely wrap our tiny minds around. And that's Peter's point. So... Here's a burning question, but I'll tell you it's not the burning question. When is all of this going to happen? When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Matthew 24 that Andrew talked about last week. Well, Peter actually does not go there. <laughs> Verses 11 and 12. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Exclamation point in the English Standard Version. <coughs> so now this is interesting, isn't it? In response to end times predictions and the return of Jesus, Peter says what? Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, you need to figure out when all this is going to happen. You better nail down your eschatology. I'm only half joking. I am just so taken with how Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, handles this. After saying the end is God showing His power and holiness in all of its majesty. So what, what he does is he calls his readers' attention not to specifics of the timing or charts or maps, but rather onto what? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now don't miss that. The whole purpose statement of all of, the, of all of this is not a ha-ha to scoffers. He's not making fun of them. Nor is it speculation about times and epochs for believers. Instead, the purpose, the sense statement, S-I-N-C-E, the purpose, the focus, is on calling on followers of Jesus to live lives of holiness and godliness. That's the main thing. Jesus is coming. The world and the universe is going to be dissolved. The unrighteous are going to be judged. So what? So you, Christians, should be really Christ-like. Since all of this is true, you be holy. That's Peter's point and call to action here. Look around, he says. Everything you see with your physical eyes, if you can see it, and I can't right there, everything you see will be dissolved. But this is where we focus so much of our attention, isn't it? Peter said, imagine it's not there. What kind of people should you be in that case? Because that's exactly what's going to happen. 
see will be dissolved. So make sure, make sure you be sure that you are living a holy, godly life. And that all y'all are living holy, godly lives. The question is not what you believe about the rapture, but instead what does your life show about the coming of the rapture? Is there a rapture? I don't know. You're like, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Talk about that later. Not the point. Now let me make something very clear. I am not in any way discounting what Andrew talked about last week. Okay? I told him I was glad that I was gone and he got to share that. It's valuable and it should encourage us to dig into everything he talked about further. It's not that that's not important. But if I hadn't been gone and if I'd have been here, we'd have never got to touch that stuff because I wouldn't have addressed it because it's not the point of the passage. So I'm glad he got to cover it. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm digging into it too and I'm thinking about it. And I'm, it's, I'm not trying to dismiss it and say it doesn't matter. It does matter. But in light of this passage, the demand, the command is not to figure out your view of end times. The demand, the command is for you to be holy. That's what matters. Peter's point is that yes, the end is coming. Things are going to dissolve. Scoffers are going to scoff and then be judged and all that's true. But our calling, our responsibility is to conduct ourselves in such a way that we are purposefully conscious of how we are conducting ourselves, how God's holiness and power is translated into and out through our lives individually and corporately. That is priority one. We are to be holy and godly, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. A few weeks ago, and maybe two or three, I don't remember, three or four, I said that the early Christians had to be talking about the fact and living like they were expecting Jesus to come back at any time. That's why the scoffers were making fun of them and pointing out that it hadn't happened yet. Well, here, Peter's making sure to keep the foot on the gas as far as his readers expecting Jesus to come back at any time. And in light of that, he calls them to live in such a way that shows they're not only waiting for Jesus' return, but also hastening that coming. Now, how in the world could you hasten Jesus' return, do you figure? Well, again, God's sovereign, and the day of His return is fixed in the heavens. But, to quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we can hasten the day by preparing ourselves by preaching the gospel, by telling others about Him. The end will come when the fullness of the Jews will come in and the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, when all will have been gathered in, when all of the routine will have been drawn out of the world. And then he goes on to say, let us hasten that by preparing ourselves. Let us hasten it by preaching and by supporting missionary work and the work of the church in this land. In fact, by everything we can do to hasten its coming. No, we don't speed things up by doing these things. But rather we live in anticipation of it happening now in our day, in our lifetimes. And we live in action. How many of you, when you're really, really busy at work, man, the day just flies by, right? And when it's really slow, you're like, I'm never getting out of here. You're like, it's got to be 3 o'clock and it's 9.48. <laughs> 
And you just watch the clock and it's like, it's not moving. So we hasten the day by being about the work that God's called us to be about. Being busy in the power that He supplies, doing the things that He's called us and empowered us to do. We don't change the, the timeline. We don't make God go, oh shoot, I better get up and go. But rather we live in anticipation of it happening now. And we show in our action, in our work, what holiness and godliness looks like in flesh and blood. And all the day, all the more as the day draws near, as the writer Hebrews says. And that day that draws near is going to be just what Peter said before. He repeats it, he reiterates it, which he says here, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Lest his readers forget, Peter just repeats what that day will look like. And it's very hot. The forecast is billions of degrees on that day. No chance of rain because he said he wouldn't do that again. <laughs> Eschatological meteorology. The forecast is hot. At least for the scoffers. The unbelievers. And thankfully that's not the only side of the equation. Our last verse for today, verse 13. But according to His promise... Let that soak in for a second. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Whoa! <laughs> so there's another B-U-T here. And it shows contrast to what? So opposed to the destruction of all things by fire in the previous verses, dissolving and melting, that's a promise, but a promise of a new heavens and a new earth that we are waiting for is a promise as well. And in those new heavens and that new earth, there's no scoffers. There's no sin. Because here in this recreated universe, listen, oh, Righteousness dwells. It's all right. It's not all right. All right, all right, all right. It's all right. Every single atom of it is right. Man, isn't it? Let me wax a little bit silly. Isn't that going to be incredible? It don't take much, well, it takes me doing that to see that everything's not right here. Y'all look really funny. But there's coming a day when everything will be right. Right according to God. Right according to His standard of righteousness. Everything will be all right. Everyone is right. And good in the new heavens and the new earth. God destroys the old and recreates everything in perfect righteousness. And guess who else is in this perfect universe? Not just God, not just the cosmos, but the elect of God, chosen before the foundation of the world. And we are there to reign and to rule with Him in righteousness, peace, and joy for literal ever. And please, please, Please know that this, this promise 
is the motivating truth that calls us to live holy and godly lives now. This, what we see here and now, is going to burn. But the promises of God are literally forever and that forever with Him in His forever righteous rule is what we are to treasure and live for here and now. We live and we walk by faith. Not that we get things and stuff here, but that we get Him there. We have Him now, but we get Him in His fullness and perfection there in eternity future. His promises, His glory, His plan. So we live now like you believe it. Live by it. That's literally what believe means. It means to live by And all of that goes back to the beginning of this verse, knowing that what is going to happen is according to His promise. He has promised us. He has promised it. His promise is true. My God will come through. Always. And His promise of that perfect future should affect us now. It's not just pie in the sky by and by. It changes the way I see things, view things, and do things now. Or I don't believe it. He has promised it. And He who calls you is faithful, right? He will surely do it, Paul says to the Thessalonians. So since that is true, since He is true, since we can count on Him doing what He has promised, we learn from the past, we look forward to eternity future, and we live right now like we know that truth that has set us free, giving glory to God, loving Him, loving others, empowered by His Holy Spirit, testifying to the beauty of His plan in the midst and the face of scoffers, in the midst of false teachers, in the midst of doubters, in the midst of the unrighteous, not in a smug, arrogant way, but in a broken-hearted boldness like John Piper said on the video Wednesday night. And also, like Peter says, living like we are waiting for this new heavens and this new earth that is saturated in righteousness, free from the curse of sin and death. Yes, Lord, may we live this way and share the good news of it to all of those that we can until our faith is made sight. Oh my God, you will not delay. What's the promise of His coming? Since the fathers went to sleep, not a thing has changed. My God will come through. Always. I lift my eyes up. Where's my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the destroyer of heaven and earth, and the recreator of heaven and earth. That's where my faith is. That's what Peter's calling us to. So we'll turn our attention to application. Looking to live out what we've seen and learned today, hopefully. Again, by the power of the Spirit. We'll be looking at application through three T's. It's tea time. Time, thief, and type. And I could have had like 12 application points. This is just thick and rich. But first application point is time. Time, thief, type. Time. So the application is this. Again, how do I live this out? What, how do I live in light of what we've seen today? Listen. Sounds silly. It sounds like it doesn't really affect us, but it does. We exist in time. Okay? 
God created time and exists outside of time. You say, we've already said that. I know I have. Here's the application. Don't try to put God on your timeline. He don't fit. He's, it, it, it's inside of Him. It, it exists in Him. And He's way bigger than that tiny little timeline. If you live 180 years, and you won't more than likely, mist, vapor, existing in the greatness and the immensity of an eternal God. So listen, that's not just about the end times. That's about as you struggle, as you suffer. And why would you wait so long to help me here, God? He's not slow, as some consider slowness. Why hasn't He done something? He's doing something. It may not be what we like, it may not be what we want, but He's not slow and He doesn't forget His promises. And He doesn't work them out on our timeline. And that is frustrating to us. I get that. I get it. I really do. But Peter is calling us here today to change our attention, change our affection, change the direction in which we look at things and stop looking at them in a linear manner and start looking at them in a full-bodied, full-throttled, eternal manner. It's cliche, but we need to have an eternal perspective in all that's going on around us. The good, the bad, the hard, the easy, the fun, the scary. We have to look at it in light of eternity. And that's hard for us to do because we're finite and we're created in time. But, here's the good news, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also... He has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God did this on purpose. He created time on purpose. He knows that we struggle with the concept of time and we don't understand eternity, but we will. Scoffers are going to scoff because they're looking at things from a natural standpoint. We have to develop as followers of Jesus and we have to live with an eternal perspective knowing that, as R.C. Sproul said, now matters for eternity. Time-bound creatures living for eternity. And let me tell you what you've got to do there. Ben, you've got to pray. You've got to study the Scripture. You've got to saturate your mind and heart with the truth of God because these five senses, what we see, smell, taste, hear, touch, don't tell us the eternal story. It has to be breathed into us and out through us by God Himself for us to at least come this close to grasping the eternality of God's plan. Don't despair when the night is dark because I know I'm not forsaken when the diagnosis is much worse than you expected. When your earthly timeline shrinks. Well, what's that matter? Better is the day of death than the day of birth, the writer of Ecclesiastes said. We don't believe that because we get caught up in the thought that this is really all there is. And it's not. This is all going to dissolve. 
So live with an eternal perspective. And you need God's help to do that. You need God's people. You need God's word. You need God's spirit to help you live that way. And not despair, but to live with hope. And we'll get to that in a minute. So that's time. Thief. (laughs) Here's an answer to a burning question. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know. You don't know. If you're sitting there going, yes, I do. No, you don't. We could argue all day. Matthew 24. Familiar? Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Why in the world would we take that statement and say, well, I'm going to figure it out. I'm smart. I can read. I watched Jack Van Impey when I was young. I'm not throwing shade at Jack Van Impey. I'm impressed with Jack Van Impey, by the way. I don't agree with him a lot, but I'm impressed with him. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, figure out your eschatology. Therefore, you also must be ready. Because for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I answered your burning question with you don't know. That's the answer to your burning question when Jesus comes back. You don't know? That's not the question we should be asking ourselves. He's coming like a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-6 Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. But he continues to write. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That seems to be a pervasive thought, right? While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction, like the dissolution of the cosmos will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep. There's the command. As others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So what's the point here? Paul's point to the Thessalonians is Jesus' point when he says you are to be ready. Which means you're holy, you're godly, and you're living life in such a way that you're expecting the return. Not for you to, oh oh no, there He comes. Come Lord Jesus. Hand to the plow. Looking straight ahead. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Doing what God's commanded us to do. And when the master comes back and finds the slaves doing what he commanded them to do, my goodness gracious, Jesus says he's going to take his outer garment off and he's going to serve them. Sign me up for that. Which means I've got to be ready. I don't need to wring my hands and wonder when he's coming. I need to roll up my sleeves and get busy doing what he's commanded me to do. Please 
Stop trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Stop it. Again, not to discount anything that was said last week. All that stuff is valuable, but it's not the command. The command is be holy, which gets us to our last point. Time, thief, and finally type. The main question is what type of people should we be? The main question is not when is Jesus coming back. That question has been answered. You don't know. And he's going to come like a thief. So the question is what type of people should we be? Commentator Tim Shinton, S-H-E-N-T-O-N, says this, quote, The Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, but no one knows the date or time. Jesus told His disciples, No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the capital S Son, but only the Father. Matthew 24, 36. Instead, commentator says, instead of speculating about dates, our responsibility as Christians is to fulfill our duties and to serve the Lord with all of our strength. And I would add the strength that He provides. In responsibility, uh, in that way, we shall be prepared for Christ's return whenever He comes. End quote. Let me go back to 1 Thessalonians, but back up to verse 4 and read through 11. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, praise God, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's what we're to be about. One last passage and we'll be done. Acts 1, 6-8. Jesus has been showing Himself alive. He's about to ascend into heaven. He's there with His disciples. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, that comes after this period. He says to them, it's not for You to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. It's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God, when's all this going to happen? Get busy. God, when does this tribulation thing fit into this? Be holy. God, what about this crazy stuff called post-millennialism? Be godly. Be eternally minded witnesses of me and my glory in the coming reign of righteousness that I'm going to set up after I dissolve everything and put it back together in perfection. What sort of people ought we to be? That's the question. And the answer is holy, godly witnesses to the perfect righteousness of our holy God. That's what matters.
not my glasses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have fixed a date, a second, when Jesus is going to come back. You have fixed a time when all will be dissolved. And God, you've given us a command not to figure that out. Matter of fact, you've commanded us not to try to figure that out. You've commanded us instead to be holy and to live godly, upright lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as stars in a dark night, pointing people to you and your glory. God, I thank you that I don't have to figure it out. I just have to trust you. I'm glad that I don't have to try to be holy in and of myself. You have given me your Holy Spirit so that I will, I shall be holy as Jesus Himself, as you yourself, Father, are holy. It's going to happen. And that's been your eternal plan and will always be your eternal plan. If there be anyone here who has not trusted in the perfect work of Jesus to pay the penalty for their sins, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice that does not understand the fact that they are sinners and that you are coming back to judge them and expose all of their deeds. God, if there's anybody that doesn't know that, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, breathe life into them and show them their sin. But even more than that, God, show them the Savior, His blood, His body, broken, poured out for them, so that their sins could be remembered no more for all eternity. And that they would put their faith that faith which is a gift from you, that they would put their faith in the finished work of Jesus to forgive their sins and to make them righteous with His perfect righteousness. And help us, God, as Your people, to live godly, holy, righteous lives in the midst of the scoffing. And may You be glorified by it all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat Mexican food with us. Mm-hmm.